This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the second weekend of February 2018. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Austin revamps its solar rebate program just as the White House levies new tariffs on solar panels. There's kind of multiple signals that are, you know, impacting people's understanding of where is this all going. Texas State University's president talks about a year of racially charged incidents on campus. We take the situation we're in and we turn it into a learning moment. And a grand juror meets with the cousin of a teenager killed by an Austin cop. Every part of the case was so difficult and that's why the jury split and people would change their minds. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. All right, everyone, as uh, Blake reported just earlier, President Trump has slapped new tariffs on imported wash machines and solar panels. Take a look at this chart here. That was a sound on Fox Business last month when the news broke about new solar tariffs. And uh, it could add to confusion for people in Austin because the news from the White House came just as the city of Austin was changing its rebate program for residential solar. KUT's Mose Bouchelle has a look. At a new 28-home development in East Austin, workers pull solar panels from the back of a trailer, haul them to a ladder, and carry them 30 feet up to the recently shingled rooftop. Don't look down! I'm not. I'm just recording with my eyes closed here. (laughs) Where they install them. This is the second one that we've done today. And then in the past couple days, we've already done about six total. And all these houses are going to get solar? Yes. Tyson Badjo is pretty new to this. He just finished up a five-year stint in the Army last summer. The solar electrician sounded a pretty cool idea, so I joined, and I'm loving it so far. What do you like about it? Just the fact that I learn something new every day. Solar is constantly changing. But some changes may not be welcome. New tariffs on solar panels announced by the Trump administration last month will make many solar projects more expensive, just as here in Austin, city rebates for solar are being phased out. The timing of that in relation to the tariff, there's there's kind of multiple signals that are, you know, impacting people's understanding of where is this all going? That's Stan Pipkin. He's one of the owners of Lighthouse Solar, the company that Bajo works for. He says his company started feeling pain from the tariffs before they were even finalized. So there's been a a run on modules across the country and really across, you know, the U.S. market. And it's affected our business already for the last four or five months. It's been a scramble to find the equipment that goes into our projects. And ironically, he says that may end up hurting companies like his more than the tariffs themselves, which ended up not being as high as some feared. Danielle Murray manages solar energy services for Austin Energy. So when it comes down to it, I think it's only really going to raise costs for our residential installations by maybe 3 to 5 percent, let's say. Which brings us to the other disruption to local solar, the end of the city's current solar incentive program. We are getting to a point where it's cost-effective enough that you don't necessarily need incentives. And we have to keep in mind that those incentives are coming out of our rates. It comes from all of our our ratepayers, our customers. The way the current program works, the amount of money the city gives back to people who install solar in their house depends on the capacity of the project. The more energy it can generate, the bigger the rebate. 
Now, Austin wants to switch to a flat one-time payment. At a recent utility commission meeting, Murray said it might be around $2,000 per project. Now, some have worried that would discourage big residential solar projects, but Murray says it should allow the city to spread rebates to more people, even if they don't have money for a huge solar investment. Hopefully something that's a little more equitable across our customers so that even, again, those smaller homes are, are getting a good incentive that'll help get them over that upfront cost barrier to install solar. You might imagine the businesses that have benefited from Austin's current program would oppose the move. But Stan Pipkin says it makes sense. Solar is more affordable for a lot of people without incentives now. And at very least, a one-time rebate will be easier to communicate to customers than calculating an incentive pegged to the energy a panel can generate. We're excited about that. Um, we just were expectant to see when that happens. And that's that's a real thing. We have you know people that are interested in preparing for the summer. They want to do solar this spring. And we just we're not quite sure where they will fall in the actual deployment. He says despite the short-term uncertainties, the future's bright for solar in Austin. And back at the installation on the east side, Tyson Bajo remains optimistic about his newly chosen career. No, I am. I mean, it's going green and everything else, so it's the future, really. The city of Austin hopes to have its new residential solar program in place in April. Mose Bouchel, KT News. Apartments near the University of Texas tend to go fast, with many units being booked well before the new school year begins. A couple months ago, one UT freshman found himself without an apartment. He says he was kicked out of a lease against his will. KUT's Saida Hassan has that story. I met Rylan Maxud outside the on-campus dorm where he's been living this school year. Like many freshmen, he was looking forward to moving off campus in the fall. Last September, Maxud signed a lease with the University House Apartments on San Antonio Street. And then in December, he got an email saying that the contract was being, quote, mutually terminated. Maxud, an aspiring law student, read through the lease carefully before signing, and he felt something was off. The lease actually says that the contract is binding on the owner and that they are required to provide me with a unit in their complex, and they just said no. As first reported by the Daily Texan, several students say their leases with the University House Apartments were terminated due to overbooking. Staff at the property declined interview requests. So did representatives of the Scion Group, which runs the apartments. Maxud eventually created a website documenting his experience and warning other students not to lease with University House. His going public prompted more back and forth with the Scion Group. Maxud shared this recording of a call with the company. He says the person on the other end was Christina and Manuel. Maxud asked the company to compensate him as well as other students who were left without a place to live. That's sort of the whole ID behind the website. It's for everyone else who doesn't know that they can do this. I'm sure you're going through school and I'm sure you're a business guy and you've got some sort. You know that's not anywhere near realistic as well as I do. Maxud says University House eventually offered him a settlement agreement, but it came with the stipulation that he could no longer talk about his experience publicly, so he refused to sign it. He has instead filed complaints with the Texas Attorney General and the Better Business Bureau. He says the whole experience has highlighted a lack of protections for student renters who are often signing leases for the first time. Many students feel like they're being taken advantage of. I I believe the 
I mean, city council should look into this honestly, uh, maybe pass some better protections for students, make it easier to make complaints, uh, because many students don't know that they can make complaints. They don't know that they have any rights. Juliana Gonzalez is executive director of the nonprofit Austin Tenants Council. She says overbooking cases have happened before, but it's unusual to hear of one being handled this way. To my mind, what would be fair is that the landlord, you know, would arrange to compensate or negotiate with the tenants who are being displaced. I just think it's real important for people to understand that what Ryland did in this situation is exactly what we're hoping that all tenants do before they sign a lease. Rylan Maxud has secured another apartment for the upcoming school year, though he says the rent is about $200 more a month than he would have paid at the university house. He says his legal negotiations with the company are ongoing. Saida Hassan, KUT News. Some Texas State University students are calling for the resignation of their student body president after racially insensitive social media posts surfaced. And this follows a tumultuous year of racial issues on campus. KUT's Delia Jones has more. The university first started getting attention for discriminatory incidents the day after the election. Flyers supporting President Donald Trump, threatening university leaders and undocumented students, and advocating white supremacy started popping up on campus. Students and faculty held protests, and Texas State University President Denise Trouth denounced several of the incidents, even increasing the university's campus police presence and holding public forums. As more flyers and banners appeared across campus over the following months, an opinions article titled Your DNA is an abomination was published in Texas State's student-run newspaper, The University Star. In the article, writer Rudy Martinez denounced white privilege and stated, quote, I hate you because you shouldn't exist. You're both the dominant apparatus on the planet and the void in which all other cultures upon meeting you die. End quote. After receiving backlash, Trouth released a statement saying the article was racist and did not adhere to the campus's values. Martinez says the statement influenced the paper's decision to relieve both him and his editor of their positions a day later. It placed a much larger target on my back, and I already had quite the target on my back, and that hasn't really subsided. The university's student body president, Connor Clegg, also publicly condemned the article, even calling for a petition to defund the university star. But we'll bring Clegg up again a little later. The paper took responsibility for the article and apologized for the offensive language used. Last month, a panel of state senators held a meeting at Texas State to discuss students' First Amendment rights. Senate Committee on State Affairs will please come to order. The committee heard from university officials, including from Texas State, Texas A&M, and Texas Southern University, where Republican State Representative Briscoe Kane was prevented from speaking at an event months earlier after student protests. At the meeting, Trout emphasized the importance of allowing students to understand their full protections under the First Amendment. Speakers also included Martinez himself, who says those exact rights were violated. Fast forwarding to last week, discriminatory and sexist Instagram posts surfaced from student body president Clegg's account. The posts included photos of Asian people and nuns with racially insensitive and derogatory comments under them. By offering a sincere and heartfelt apology. Clegg apologized, stating that he was immature in high school when the photos were taken. What I said in those posts was unacceptable, and it was the byproduct of a complete cultural ignorance that I had before I came to Texas State. Trout also released a statement condemning the posts. Now we make it to this week, Monday night. 
Hundreds of students gathered at a student government meeting calling for Clegg's resignation and impeachment. One of Clegg's many critics and student activists who voiced concern at the meeting was Russell Boyd. He says behavior like Clegg's has been tolerated for too long. He also says racial tensions have not been addressed by Trouth in an environment where students don't feel safe. This university has gone above and beyond to make a name for itself, to bring in revenue. No one's taking that away from her, but as far as someone being student-oriented and student-connected, she has done a very piss-poor job, in my opinion. Trout has released about five statements in the past year in relation to racism on campus. And although Martinez, Clegg, and Boyd have strong opinions on what Texas State is or is not doing right, all agreed on one thing, that there's been more tension on campus in the past year and a half than they've seen before. And it needs to be fixed. Delia Jones, KUT News. Joining us now to talk more about this is the president of Texas State University, Denise Trouth. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. As we just heard, there's a lot that's been happening on the Texas State campus over the past year or so. How much have you could you have done to prevent the situation from getting to where it is today? One of the things that any observer of higher education in this country will see is that The kinds of incidents that have occurred at Texas State University have happened at over 100, probably 150 public universities in this country. Texas State is not an island. We're part of the United States, and the dynamics that have been unleashed in this country affect Texas State University. And are you getting involved enough? I am very involved. I'm very engaged, very involved. You know, on one level, people think that a university president is all-powerful. And the reality is I'm not all-powerful. Now, at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. There's no question about that. But in the case, for example, of the student government president, the buck is enforcing the constitution of the student government, which has a process for impeaching the president if that's what the students want to do. When it comes to Connor Clegg, the student body president, you have acknowledged that some of the content on his social media accounts posted as recently as last year was racist and offensive. And you've said that you also expect students to uphold the university's core values of diversity, inclusion, and unity. You can't impeach Clegg. Do you think he should resign, though? I don't really want to say whether or not Connor should resign because I believe, and the Constitution of Student Government states, that it is the student's prerogative to decide whether or not the president should be impeached. If I make a statement about for or against the impeachment, then I'm trying to influence a process that's not my process. The students elected him. The students should decide whether or not he's impeached. I know last year, Texas State adopted a university diversity and inclusion strategic plan. A number of public universities have done this. Is there anything more that Texas State could do to help minority students, students of color, feel more included in university life, to sort of lower the temperature, so to speak? We made a determination via the prior strategic plan, that we wanted to become more diverse. We wanted to become a Hispanic-serving institution. And we 
adopted a phrase. It wasn't new at Texas State. It was actually a phrase that one of the churches in downtown Austin used, deliberately diverse. And we put admissions counselors in Houston, in the Valley, in Dallas, all over the state to recruit a more diverse student body. Having done that, it is incumbent upon us to do everything we can to help all of our students feel included. And you can always do more, and we will do more. We are doing more, and we'll do more and more every single semester. Because inclusion and student success are are linked. And we have a faculty and staff who are, they're diverse themselves, and they want all of the students to feel included. Yeah, one of the uh, five goals of your plans to strengthen diversity is to increase the diversity of faculty and senior level administrators because the student body right now is you know is 36% hispanic 11% african american the faculty is 11% hispanic and 4% african american so there's not necessarily a reflection there of the diversity of the student body in the faculty is that something you'd like I would like us to check those numbers they're from your website um, i can bring uh, it up right here But, I mean, generally speaking, you must know that the student body is more diverse than the faculty. You've even addressed in this plan as one of your goals to change that. What can you do to make the faculty more diverse? Well, let me tell you what we are doing. When we have a search that we're going to start for a faculty position, we look at national data. There's national data available that will tell you how many people are earning a Ph.D., in various disciplines across the whole United States, because essentially that's what we require is a PhD if you're going to be a member of the faculty or a terminal degree. Let me give you an example. About three years ago, we had a position in our marketing department that was available. So we started a national search. The previous year, in the whole United States, four African Americans earned PhDs in marketing in the whole United States, we were able to recruit one of those four African-Americans for our marketing department. I think that story tells you something, not just about our search processes, but it tells you something about the culture of the university. So we use national data. You cannot hire people in a field if there are not diverse people earning PhDs in that field. And that is one of the problems. It's a national problem. But we we have been successful in bringing in a diverse faculty. You have said in your role as university president at Texas State, you have an absolute duty to publicly speak out as an advocate on issues that directly impact, directly impact the university and your academic mission. How much of what's transpired over the past year at Texas State has to do with the election of Donald Trump? I wouldn't presume to know why certain things are happening. But I can tell you that one of the things that we know about our students is that the group of students who are in college right now are more civically engaged than students were even, say, 10 years ago or perhaps even five years ago. So maybe it's the confluence of several factors here that we're seeing. A fact that I do know is that the first posters showed up the day after the election. That 
probably is not a coincidence. Also, we have reason to believe those were not students who put those posters up. And these are white supremacist posters? Yes. Okay. What that tells me is that universities have been targeted, if you will, as places where people can spread literature in a way that they wouldn't be spreading it in a supermarket parking lot, for example. I think universities have been singled out, and public, big publics in particular have been singled out for all of these views that are becoming very public. I'm guessing that if you had to choose, this would not be the subject you would like to be doing interviews about. There are many, many wonderful things going on at Texas State right now. It's a, it's a great time at a great university. One of the things that I see every day is huge numbers of diverse students mixing and mingling, walking to class together. It is an inclusive place. And I think that what we're doing right now is taking the current environment and turning it around and saying, this is a teachable moment. We are going to make Texas State a better place. Denise Trouth is the president of Texas State University. President Trouth, thank you for your time. You're welcome. First day of early voting in the Texas primaries is coming up on Tuesday, February 20th, pretty soon. So to help you get ready for the trip to the polls, we've been telling you about what various elected officials actually do. It's a series we've been calling Get to Know Your Statewide Offices. And we're going to wrap up this series with an explanation of the Texas Attorney General's Office. KUT's Ben Philpott reports on what it means to be the state's top lawyer. When Texas Governor Greg Abbott was our state's attorney general, he had a memorable way of describing his daily duties. My job description has been simplified over the past four years because what I do is I go into the office, I sue the federal government, and then I go home. That's from a speech Abbott gave in 2013, but it could have been from just about any of his public appearances. He purposefully oversimplified what his office does. But Julie Parsley says defending the state's laws is certainly a key element. The attorney general is really the state's attorney. Uh, he or she defends the state's laws and constitution. They uh, represent the state and its agencies, which is a very important thing to do. But there's also a lot of a myriad of things that they do by state law, too. Parsley served in the AG's office for three years, including time as the state's solicitor general. Those other job functions include consumer protection. It's the AG's job to watch out for things like price gouging during a natural disaster and collecting child support. The AG also has oversight on charitable institutions. Hugh Brady is director of the Legislative Lawyering Clinic at the UT School of Law. There was uh, some litigation in South Texas over one of the um, descendants of the founder of the King Ranch. She had left a trust uh, to benefit you know, a hospital and some things down there. And there were allegations that the trustees were self-dealing. 
But Brady says there's one thing in particular that some people assume the office does that it doesn't. The Texas attorney general is not a crime fighter. Former Solicitor General Parsley says that hasn't stopped some AG candidates from playing up the role of crime fighter when running for office. Back in like the 70s, you would see some candidates running for AG who would be standing in a a jail cell and they'd slam the jail door and they'd say, I'm going to put criminals behind bars. That's that's not putting criminals behind bars is not their primary uh, job. There are some exceptions. If a local district attorney is recused from a case, the AG's office will step in to take over. Or if a local district attorney needs help prosecuting a case, again, the AG's office is there to help out. So what qualifications do you need to perform all these duties? Parsley says there is one big requirement. Well, of course, you have to be an attorney. But how you use your law degree is up to you. Abbott and the attorney general before him, current U.S. Senator John Cornyn, both sat on the Texas Supreme Court before becoming attorney general. Is that experience a necessity? Whether you have to do something like that, I don't think that's necessarily required. Or, or But it, I think that it certainly has it has its benefits. Parsley says the benefit is having a deeper understanding of state law in general. Ben Philpot, KUT News. Bump stocks are an accessory used on semi-automatic rifles to fire multiple shots in rapid succession. Some businesses sell them here in Texas. You can even find them online for less than $150. But a lot of places are out of stock. There's been somewhat of a run on bump stocks lately. After the October shooting in Las Vegas, where a man used semi-automatic rifles equipped with bump stocks to kill 58 people and wound almost 500 others. People have been snatching up bump stocks over concerns they could be subject to stricter federal regulation. There was a huge public outcry after the Las Vegas shooting to restrict bump stocks. And public opinion surveys suggested widespread support for tougher controls. Now, the federal agency that regulates firearms, the ATF, said it would reconsider whether to classify them as machine guns. A public comment period that ended two weeks ago solicited more than 36,000 comments from a range of people, manufacturers, sellers, consumers, concerned citizens. And a nonprofit news organization that focuses on guns in America analyzed these comments to see what they said. The news organization is The Trace. Sean Campbell is their senior investigative fellow. Hi, Sean. Hi, Nathan. So what did you find when you analyzed these thousands and thousands of comments about bump stocks? Yeah, so it was uh, pretty interesting. Even though the majority of Americans are highly in favor of supporting banning bump stocks and increasing regulations on accessories that replicate machine gun fire, the vast majority of the comments that the ATF seemed to be receiving were from individuals that were actually anti-regulation. They didn't want anybody touching their guns in any way, shape, or form. About 85% of these commenters were against regulation, and only around 13% or so uh, supported regulation. So 85% opposed any regulation of of bump stocks, just wanted to keep them as an accessory that could be purchased anywhere without even a federal background check. Yes. Whereas the majority of Americans, from all the polling data we have, it's very clear they support regulating and keeping bump stocks out of civilian hands. They don't believe that bump stocks and things that simulate machine gun fire should be in civilian hands without limits. Sean, that seems like a really big disparity. What accounts for that disparity between the public comments and what we see in public opinion surveys? That's that's an interesting question. And 
The thing is, is that our analysis can't speak totally on why that is. However, the trace has reported on research that indicates that pro-gun men are significantly more likely to engage in political activism than any other group. And pro-gun organizations are very well-developed institutions that have been around for decades. How important are these comments to the ATF as they weigh whether to regulate bump stocks? I reached out to the ATF to ask them, and they don't comment on any ongoing regulations. I could tell you that this is one step in the chain, and after this, they'll decide, after reading these comments and probably discussing internally, if they're going to change the existing decision on bump stocks and other devices like hand cranks that uh, can increase the rate of fire. I will say that they did reopen the issue because of the Las Vegas shooting. So because of the Las Vegas shooting, when they can see the kind of carnage and loss of life and injury that these devices can cause, they decide to revisit, well, sure, it's an accessory, it's a piece that you add on, it's not the rifle itself, but what matters now? Is it what the device physically is or what it can do after modification? And just to be clear, the ATF isn't considering banning bump stocks because you can buy machine guns if you have the right tax stamp and uh, the right paperwork. Would, that, would it be a ban on bump stocks or just make it harder for people to get them? It would make it harder for people to get them. So they'd be regulated through the ATF, so they would have to file similar paperwork to uh, what is filed for a machine gun if it's listed under that same category, which is what this is reopening. But you could still get them. You can still get a machine gun. There's just a lot uh, more paperwork. Sean Campbell is a senior investigative fellow for The Trace, a nonprofit news organization that focuses on guns in America. You can read his story at thetrace.org. Thanks, Sean, for your time. Thanks, Nathan. In 2016, a black teenager named David Joseph was killed by an Austin police officer. David Joseph was unarmed. The two-year anniversary of his death was yesterday, Thursday. Now, in December, we heard a story about David's cousin, Vanessa Bissereth, on this podcast. She spent a year and a half trying to memorialize David, first with a mural, then with police reform. Neither of those really panned out. Former APD officer Jeffrey Freeman shot David in March of 2016. A Travis County grand jury declined to charge Freeman with a crime. After the story of Vanessa aired on KUT, one of those grand jurors got in touch with us. She wanted to meet Vanessa. KUT's Audrey McGlinchey was there for the conversation. First, a few ground rules. We're not using the name of the grand juror or any identifying characteristics. Grand jury proceedings are secret. Jurors are prohibited by law from sharing information that's not public. In this case, the juror stuck only to information I was able to independently verify. But KUT is still shielding her name to protect her from potential fines or jail time. We'll call her the juror. Throughout the story, she becomes other people, the optimist, the agitator. You'll see. The juror and Vanessa meet at a busy restaurant around lunchtime. They sit at a table by the window. A waiter comes by. When the waiter leaves, they start talking about David's case. Here's the juror. 
that whole case and everything has never really left. And every time things come out in the news, it's upsetting. Twelve people make up a grand jury. They decide whether someone gets charged with a crime. Only nine need to vote for what's called a true bill or an indictment. It wasn't an easy process and people changed their minds because depending on what evidence or witnesses came into the court, into the room, it was just everybody had a hard time with it. On the day David was killed, he was muttering to himself and wandering around a neighborhood in North Austin. He'd taken his clothes off. It was a cold February morning. Several neighbors called police. Did you know about his erratic behavior before that incident happened? For a moment, the juror becomes the agitator. What was going on in his life? Before that, even that morning, when it happened, he was fine. I don't know how he ended up undressing where his clothes went. He was obviously not in a good place when that happened. She's been here for 10 minutes now, but Vanessa starts to shut down. Every part of the case was so difficult, and that's why the jury split and people would change their minds about how they felt. You know, in the end, he felt that... Officer Freeman. His life was in jeopardy. Um, I don't know if you know, they, they call it an excited state or an erratic state where people who are on drugs or who are mentally ill are stronger than the normal person in their right mind because of that state. And um, I think many police officers are afraid to be disarmed and have their weapon used against them. And in the end, that was what most of the grand jury decided on. (laughs) Officer Freeman's life outweighed David's in that outcome. That's all there is to it. A group of people decided that. Like, I'm not supposed to be talking to you right now about this. The juror becomes the comforter. But I thought it was important for you to know that, you know, he won't be forgotten. You know, maybe you're not going to get the mural. But that story lingers for a lot of people, even people who weren't part of that whole process when that was happening. You know, there was a lot of people who were shocked, stunned, angry, sad. I think about him all the time. I talk about him in present tense to people. They look at me funny because they know he's dead, but I can't seem to understand that. The lunch rush is almost over. The restaurant starts to empty. Maybe you can use that to motivate you going forward. The optimist. Become an activist, as you are already becoming and doing, and, you know, trying to help other families or reinforce or help change an attitude. Instead of, I mean, of course you're going to have pain, but sometimes people can use that to motivate them to do greater acts. And you have that in you. I can see it. I don't know. I don't think. (laughs) 
activism is in me. I barely found the courage to call you back. You did, and all it takes is a phone call, and you did so much. You wrote letters to the council, you already reached out. Why not reach out to a group that feels the same way you do? They've been talking for an hour. Vanessa's been working up the courage to ask something. Even on my way here, I was trying to rehearse how to say this, because I don't want to ask. But I do want to know. Just say it. The juror becomes the person with answers. I guess, did he die uh, immediately? Not immediately. I'm not, I think by the time he got to the hospital, but they, he was on the ground for a little while before he died. Did Officer Freeman try to help him afterwards? They cuffed him while he was on the ground after he was shot. It was another officer who handcuffed David. Vanessa goes quiet. Her sadness has given way to anger. She talks about the footage from the dash cam video. In it, Freeman gets out of his squad car. David charges at him. Freeman yells at him to stop before shooting twice. David didn't move until Officer Freeman got out of the vehicle. I, I don't understand it. Why wasn't he indicted? Why? The person with answers is now just a woman. The juror is quiet. David was wandering down a hill before he stepped out of his squad car. He didn't move until Officer Freeman said something. Mm-hmm. Why? I said the same thing. I was like, well, why didn't he stay in the car and use his loudspeaker, right? Cops have loudspeakers on their vehicles, you know, pull over or whatever. Use that and try to assess the situation and take a little more time to really... But the concern was that he might try to get into somebody's house and run the other way and be a threat. That doesn't make sense. Vanessa's anger is blinding. The juror becomes the officer. You shot him because of your imagination? The juror has to leave soon. David's birthday is at the end of February. She says she'll light a candle for him. The juror gives Vanessa a hug. She's the comforter once again. Vanessa tells her she's glad they met. The juror goes, Vanessa stays. She says she needs some time to herself. Audrey McGlynn, she, KUT News. That's KUT Weekend for the second weekend of February 2018. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the people who are members of KUT. You can join them by supporting us financially. You just go to KUT.org if you want. Or leave us a nice review in the iTunes store or podcast app, whatever it's called. And email any questions or comments to me, Nathan at KUT.org. Or you can just ask me on Twitter. I am at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by RAC. I hope you have a great day. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. Hold up. 